Before we begin, if you haven't listened to our last two episodes on Morris K. Jessup and Carlos Allende, those are a good place to start. Also, there's some material in this episode that's not for kids. It's not for adults, if I'm honest, but just a warning that when we get to Preston Nichols' deprogramming techniques, you may want to make sure you're not playing it around anyone easily disturbed. I never got any money from you. This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. This is Al Preston, a chair and a monster. And this is the final installment of our fairly epic uh, trek through the uh, the world of the Philadelphia experiment and all the things that sort of led to that and all the things that are spinning out of it. Maybe not all the things that are spinning out of it. Um, had to make some actually not tough choices about what not to include. This gets wild and out of hand and some of these things need to be restrained a little bit. So let's all hold on and enjoy the ride to a place called Montauk. So when we last left off, we were talking about Carlos Allende and the Philadelphia Experiment book and the emergence of this ship called the Eldridge into the story, or rather the same ship, but it was given a name finally. Things would continue to develop in the early 1990s with the emergence of a man named Al Bielik. And his story is complex and there's a lot here. And one of the challenges of doing this was, was just trying to get all of this into a narrative that wasn't a chore to listen to. So to vary this up, um, to tell the story of Al Bielik, I'll be summarizing some of a 1990 speech he gave at a MUFON conference and uh, using information from two books, The Philadelphia Experiment and Other UFO Conspiracies by Brad Steiger with Al Bielik and Sherry Hansen Steiger, as well as The Philadelphia Experiment Chronicles exploring the strange case of Alfred Bielek and Dr. M.K. Jessup by none other than Commander X. To present this, I'll be using some of our usual primary source gimmick, as well as words from Bielek himself, from speeches he gave that are online that are sort of telling the same story. I do want to be clear. We're going to be presenting the story as he presented it. And there are holes to poke, but we will poke them later. So here we go. Around 1989 or so, a figure emerged into the New Age conspiracy paranormal UFO scene named Alfred Bielek, or Al Bielek, as he was usually known. Bielek told a story about the Philadelphia experiment that had some elements of the original Carlos Allende tellings, but with some new twists. And by the time we get to the mid-90s, he would be telling the story in numerous venues on Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell, on the end of the line with Jeff Rents, and the like I said, the version I'm relying on is a talk he gave at the 1990 MUFON conference that was transcribed and posted to, to various BBSs. He begins his story by talking about the science work being done in the 1930s at the University of Chicago and also, and especially, the Institute of Advanced Studies at Princeton University. He name drops a lot of scientists, Einstein especially, a lot like 
Allende here talking about Einstein and the unified field theory. John von Neumann will play a big role going forward. He talks about Robert Oppenheimer and David Hilbert, who was a mathematician who Bielek says theorized about multiple universes. And then Tesla shows up because of course he does. And in telling his story, and it's remarkably similar, whether it's this MUFON speech I'm using as a basis for this for this narrative or on Art Bell or whatever, Bielek will be telling his story and then sort of go off on a tangent. And so he goes off on a tangent about Tesla. And it's mostly a standard account of Tesla's accomplishments, the AC versus DC electrical transmission standard fight with Edison, Westinghouse and things like that. I mean, almost standard. He does throw in some other stuff about Tesla like this. In 1899, Tesla went to Colorado Springs to do a lot of research, and in this period of the research, he was dabbling into very basic ideas of research involving very high-powered electricity, electrical bolts, the Tesla coil, if you will. He was there two years. He made some press announcements. One of them, in 1899, was that he had been in contact with some people off planet Earth, ETs, if you will, in our modern terminology. The press took a great note of it, and the scientific colleagues took a very dim view of it at the time. That was not a popular subject. They thought he was a little bit around the bend, perhaps, which they thought very much he was later, a couple decades later. But he stuck to his guns. Now, to be clear, this is one of those stories that has a basis in fact, that Tesla thought he was being contacted, not that he necessarily was, mind you. And that sort of thing makes Tesla a very useful figure for people who need a mad scientist to add to their conspiracy theory. And what Tesla actually wrote is interesting. And, and yes, I realize I am doing the Albelic thing of, of breaking off from my own narrative to talk about something tangential. But I, I love Tesla's sort of description of what he experienced. Even now, at times, I can vividly recall the incident and see my apparatus as though it were actually before me. My first observations positively terrified me, as there was present in them something mysterious, not to say supernatural. And I was alone in my laboratory at night. But at that time, the idea of these disturbances being intelligently controlled signals did not yet present itself to me. It was some time afterward when the thought flashed upon my mind that the disturbances I had observed might be due to an intelligent control. Although I could not decipher their meaning, it was impossible for me to think of them as having been entirely accidental. The feeling is constantly growing on me that I had been the first to hear the greeting of one planet to another. Of course, this experience sometimes gets sort of twisted into, in 1899, Tesla made contact with aliens on Mars. As you'll see, that's kind of what's going to happen here. But anyway, back to the story. So Tesla is placed in charge of the Philadelphia experiment by President Roosevelt in 1933. Yes, 1933, not 1943. Tests in 1936 were partially successful at producing invisibility. And at this point in the talk, Bielek goes into the supposed history of the Philadelphia Experiment film. Now, I watched the Philadelphia Experiment film. I did not watch the Philadelphia Experiment 2. And it's it's a nice film. It's a nice sort of science fiction time travel film with some romance in it. It's very, very interesting. And as we'll see, time travel is going to play a role in Al Bielek's story in a way that time travel absolutely did not play a role in the Philadelphia experiment up until this point. As we're going to see, I'm not suggesting that Bielek took everything about what he was talking about from the Philadelphia experiment film, 
but the time travel element is interesting. But why would why would there be a film that tells the secrets of the Philadelphia experiment? Wouldn't the government have tried to suppress this? Well, according to Bielek, the government did try to suppress it. I haven't gotten into how I got involved in it yet. Didn't quite get into it at this point. I came in later, but I think what I want to do at this point is take a slight break from the theoretical side and show you a videotape. Part of it produced by EMI Thorne Corporation of England. This movie was produced basically in 1983 and was released in the United States in 1984 from England to be shown in theaters, with schedule to set up about mid-August of 84, and the movie lasted two weeks. About three days before the movie was released, EMI Thorne received a letter from the United States government saying, we don't want this movie to be shown in the United States. They decided after some deliberation to ignore the letter because they had already made their release dates, and they said, well, three days we can play that we never got the letter. So they released the movie, and it was shown in various places. New York, Philadelphia, as I understand, there were huge waiting lines to see it, and various other cities around the U.S. Phoenix, Sedona, Arizona, Chicago, Los Angeles, whatever. Another letter arrived at EMI Thorne in England shortly thereafter, a very stern, we don't want this movie to be shown in the United States. So EMI Thorne could not ignore the second letter, so they fired back at the government and said, if you want this movie stopped, you'll have to get a court injunction to stop it. And the government said, we will, and they did. They got a court order banning the showing of this movie in the United States. That court order took effect sometime early September, and the movie disappeared completely for two years. In the meantime, EMI Thorne went ahead and decided that they wanted to fight this, and they did successfully. Two years later, they had a counter-injunction issued banning the first one, and it again became available as a videotape. I don't believe it has ever been shown in a movie house after that, but the videotape is commonly available. Movie house. I am absolutely going to start referring to cinemas as movie houses, like it's 1921. So that's something, right? Injunctions and counter-injunctions. I decided I wasn't going to do too much research on this because we're on, you know, hour three of this whole Philadelphia experiment thing. But I did the barest amount of research it was possible to do and still be doing something called research. And I discovered that rather than the Philadelphia experiment movie being unavailable for years due to injunctions and court battles, according to the trivia section of its IMDb entry, quote, at the time of its release, it had the fastest theatrical-to-video window in film history. It opened in August and was released on video by late October, end quote. That kind of turnaround is unheard of in the 80s. I mean, not that I know. My family didn't get a VCR until 1991. But yeah, yeah, it's totally being suppressed by the government. Bielik, and this is another aside, but Bielik is a really weird word to type and my computer keeps auto-correcting it to bilk insert jane Pauley clip about ufo standing for unprecedented financial opportunity okay okay back back to everything bielik explains that the dates of the philadelphia experiment that we've always been told have been wrong the philadelphia experiment didn't take place in october of 1943 but rather in august of 1943 now this is the earlier end of the window that in the Philadelphia Experiment book, Moore and Berlitz discovered that the Eldridge could possibly have been where Allende said it was. So he he goes on in this story, and, and this is one of the reasons I, I've always had a difficult time getting into the Al Bielik story, is because he takes forever to get anywhere. I am compressing so much. So in the end here, what, 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 is, what is Al Bielik for? Well, that's a good question. What is Al Bielik for? Where does he fit into all this? He explains his background, and 
it's it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. Now you may ask, where do I fit in this picture? It's a good question. I'll give you the answer. I was not born Al Bielik. I was born Edward Cameron in 1916, 4th of August, son of Alexander Duncan Cameron Sr., who was a Navy man at that time, had a career as a Navy man. We don't know when he joined the Navy because those records have disappeared. As I like to say today, the records were sanitized. And we only have one picture of him in the Navy, and that was in 1917 in his bosun's mate first class uniform. But he was a ladies' man. He loved his ladies. And I was born in 1916 to one of his live-in marriage women. And Duncan, my brother, Duncan Cameron, named after his father, Alexander Duncan Cameron Jr., was born in 1917 in a different location in the New York area. I was born in uh, the Bayshore area of Long Island, and Duncan was born up in Connecticut. Came the war in 1917, father was tapped on the shoulder by the Navy and says, you're out to sea in service now. So he abandoned his two wives, live-in type, they weren't legal. I've checked the records. And of course he led on with his life in the Navy. We were raised by Auntie Cameron in the big house in uh, East Lyslip, Long Island. Completed our regular schooling, father insisted, and he did come home once a year around Christmas. We see him for a, typically a week, maybe two weeks, that we must get a good education. So we did. I went to Princeton. Duncan went to the University of Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, he took a PhD in physics in the summer of 39, and I took a PhD in physics in the summer of 39 at Harvard. I met Dr. von Neumann on the campus at the university in Princeton, and he insisted I should go to Harvard to get my PhD. It was, in his view, a better school at that time. So I did. I did not learn too much later why he had such an interest in me. That's an interesting long story. In any case, we both graduated in the summer of 39, at father's insistence, who had left the Navy in December 31st, 1929, with a heart condition and a pension. We joined the Navy in September of 1940, 50 Church Street, New York. We're given commissions, Lieutenant J.G., and sent to a special Navy 90-day wonder school for special officers and their special programs. We graduated, and in January of 1940, we joined the project of the Institute. So, Al Bielik is not Al Bielik, at least not entirely. He's really Edward Cameron, or at least he used to be. And he's older than he looks, or at least, yeah, he's older than he looks. It it gets stranger. And he's got a brother named Duncan. So these two brothers, Edward and Duncan Cameron, are working on the Philadelphia Experiment Project when World War II breaks out. There's some runaround where they're going to be stationed. They're, They're on the USS Pennsylvania for a bit before heading back east to work on the project. Most of all, the Navy is very concerned that these two boys stay safe because they are vital to the functioning of the Philadelphia experiment. Speaking of the experiment, Tesla is worried about the project, particularly he's worried about the effects of the project on human beings. And the data that informed his concerns came from a very high level source. Along about this time, he made another press announcement in 1923 about talking with ETs off-planet, which fell on some interested ears, but a lot of dead ears also. And he maintained a stance that he was in communication with ETs, 
Unknown to most people, he had a second laboratory, which apparently was his main one on top of the Waldorf Astoria, on the top floor in both penthouse towers. And I know two people who said they were working with Tesla during that period, that he was using that equipment. He was talking with somebody virtually every day, and one of them was emphatic. It was someone off-planet. In plain language, he was communicating with ETs. Who? I have no idea. It's never been revealed, but during that period he got some additional information, and he suddenly went to the Navy and said, We are going to have a personnel problem. We are going to have a very serious problem. You cannot develop the amount of power necessary to make a large ship of the line invisible without having effects on the personnel. I need more time. I need to develop countermeasures for this so that the personnel are not harmed. The Navy said, You can't. You've got a deadline. There's a war on. Make it work. You can fix it, but don't change it. There was a deadline date, which happened to be March of 42. The specific test approached. He became very uneasy about it and finally decided, with no extension in time and no way that he could modify the hardware to correct the problem, there was only one out for him. And that was to sabotage the equipment, not by physically destroying it, but making certain that it would never work when it was turned on, which was, in essence, what he proceeded to do on this test date, March of 42. The battleship did not have a special crew on. It had the regular crew, although it had the specialized equipment. And the switches were thrown and nothing happened, and Mr. Tesla bowed out. He said, well, gentlemen, the experiment is a failure, and it's time for me to leave. There's a very good man here who can take over things and make things work for you, and that's Dr. John von Neumann. Bye. So Tesla is out, and von Neumann is in. And... You and I, because we've been paying attention to the Philadelphia experiment for a while now, know why Tesla is concerned, right? Because you've got people melting into bulkheads and going insane and being on fire and and everything like that. So Tesla's out. Von Neumann is in. Bielik goes through a whole bunch of very legit sounding science stuff, the gist of which is that von Neumann didn't think Tesla was using enough power, so he ramped up the power involved. Now, Tesla wasn't using so much power because he didn't want everything to go wrong. Von Neumann doesn't have those concerns. So it's August 12th, 1943, and they throw the switch. I like to imagine it was all activated by a big cartoony lever. Um, There was a blue flash and the Eldridge vanished. And Bielik describes what happened next. When the ship disappeared, and I'll finish out the story now, when the ship disappeared, we, of course, Duncan and I were in the control room, and we knew within about 30 seconds something was very wrong. We tried to shut the equipment off. We went for the main power switches, they were frozen. We couldn't budge them. So we got the bright idea with all kinds of arcing taking place in the control room, which had no business being there, and we didn't know what was going on. We couldn't shut it off, so out we went through the bulkhead door, went out on deck, saw all these Navy people milling around. No one was buried in the decks then. We had the bright idea to jump overboard and swim ashore. Well, at that point, with the fields on, you could not see anything beyond the railing of the ship. Nevertheless, we jumped overboard, expecting to hit the water in the bay. We did not. We started falling and falling and falling. Eventually, wound up standing on dry land at night with our backs to a what was obviously a military fence, a chain-link fence, and suddenly a bright light overhead. There was a searchlight on a helicopter, but we knew nothing about helicopters in those days because in 43, they were almost a toy. Sikorsky was still working on perfecting them for the military. Nonetheless, this bright light beamed down on us, blinding, really. MPs came out of nowhere, grabbed us, took us to a building. We got on an elevator and went down several levels. 
Then the elevator door opens and we're met by an elderly gentleman with white hair, a civilian. Everyone else down there seemed to be military. And he said to us, welcome gentlemen, I've been waiting for you, I'm Dr. John Van Neumann. We looked at him and he said, you're who? He said, you're Dr. John Van Neumann. We were still quite dazed, frankly. He said, you couldn't be. We left him an hour ago and he's a much younger man. And he said, I'm sorry, I am the same Van Neumann you knew 40 years ago. You're no longer in 1943, you're in 1983, and you're at Montauk, Long Island, part of the Phoenix Project. Welcome. Well, we thought he was nuts. Well, we were there about 12 hours total. From our, we found out later we arrived about 2 a.m. in the morning of, of the 12th of August, 83. And they gave us the Cook's tour. Huge computers, computer control systems, hard disk drives, control systems, graphic displays, color TV, large screen, and all kinds of electronic equipment, none of which existed in 43. And we sat down and started to watch TV. Well, you see advertisements for 747 jets and uh, discussions about man and the moon and you know, a couple of views of modern superhighways and the gigantic traffic jams. We soon got the idea that something was drastically wrong and we finally had to accept what he told us. Then he sprung it on us. Well, gentlemen, you're gonna have to go back to the Eldridge. Oh, guess how are we gonna do that? Well, we'll send you back. And how are you going to do that? Very simple, we control space and time here from this project. We can send you anywhere as we want at any time we want. So they sent us back. The instructions were to smash the equipment on the Eldridge because it had enough fuel in the generators to run 30 days if something didn't break down first. And it had built and was within a, what is called a hyperspace bubble, which was growing. And the two experiments, 43 and 83, both 12th August, had locked up and pulled the ship out of the harbor of Philadelphia and in this hyperspace bubble. So, just to keep track, during the Philadelphia experiment, Edward Cameron and his brother Duncan jump overboard, they jump off the ship, and travel from August 12, 1943 to August 12, 1983. There, they meet the doctor in charge of the project, John von Neumann, who's still very old, or is very old at that point, and this man tells them they have to go back in time and smash up all the equipment to make sure that everything is okay. Got that? Because it only gets weirder from here. Now, it turns out there had been an unexpected visitor during the experiment, and this is Al Bielik talking to Brad Steiger in Steiger's book, The Philadelphia Experiment and Other UFO Conspiracies. Between August 4th and August 12th, we had sighted UFOs hovering over the Eldridge. Well, a UFO was sucked along with us to Montauk, and it was dismantled there. Although no one knew it then, the most important piece of equipment on the Eldridge was Tesla's zero-time generator. This incredible device was created to lock into the basic zero-time of our galaxy. It provides a physical cosmological lockup that must be in place before one can attempt any exotic experiments in teleportation, invisibility, or whatever. It appears that the UFO had been trying to warn us that we must not attempt our experiment on August 12th. The Earth has its own biorhythm, just as we humans and all living things do. There's a 20-year peak that occurred that year on August 12, 1943. We were pulled into hyperspace and emerged 40 years later in 1983. So aliens were present at the Philadelphia experiment. So what went wrong? Al says that he was told basically that it went wrong because in 1943, they didn't have a computer, and a computer was necessary for the success of the project. 
because each individual has his own individual time lock reference. And when some kind of power disrupts that reference, people are torn away from their moments in time and drift away to another point in time. And this goes back to Tesla's time generator thing. So eventually, Dr. von Neumann comes up with a computer, and he is known in actual real history for being a computer pioneer. And eventually, Bielik explains, the powers that be shut the operation down, and the Eldridge is transferred to the Greek Navy, and everything is over. Or is it? What about the whole deal of Al Bielik being Edward Cameron? He explains it kind of here. You may not believe this, but secret government agencies have the ability to arrange new bodies for souls whose previous physical bodies have died. My brother's soul was introduced to a body that was born in 1951. For reasons that I cannot explain at this time, they cannot allow my brother or myself to die. It was arranged that I should have the body and background of Alfred Bielek, born in 1927. The CIA and NSA have all kinds of incredible technology that can work with the individual's genetic blueprint and the external matrix that flows around it. They can do physical age regression and progression. So at some point, Edward Cameron's soul is sent back in time to be born into a new body and live out that life as Al Bielek. Exactly when seems to vary. Bielek talks about being involved with other government projects throughout the 1940s, especially in this first book by Steiger. In any event, Edward will be reborn as Al Bielek in 1927. At the age of 10 in 1937, he has a weird experience, which he describes almost as an awakening. This is because, he believes, 1937 was the year he first got involved in all of the Philadelphia experiment weirdness. He studies, becomes an engineer, and works in that field, but he's been brainwashed. He doesn't know about his past. He does learn eventually that his brother Duncan will return to 1983, but he became unmoored from his time reference point, and he ages rapidly, dying within days. Fortunately, his soul is transmitted back in time, and he's reborn in 1951, and we'll be hearing more about Duncan Cameron in a little while. Bielek's brainwashing was fairly thorough, though, he claims. And it's been a horrendous waste, I would say, of a career of knowledge I once had. Pieces of it came back at times, but the basic personality remains quite stably as Al Bielek, and the memories of Edward A. Cameron flit in and out. But they're mostly there now, particularly the earlier years, up to and through the experiment. From 43 to 47, a good part of it is blank. I don't know what else happened. Except I know that in 47, they decided that I was no longer useful. In fact, I had to be gotten rid of. So that's basically the story of what happened. So he was brainwashed and doesn't remember anything. But according to the Steiger book, which came out in 90, he said he began researching the Philadelphia experiment in the 1960s, but didn't realize at the time there was a personal connection involved. He becomes acquainted with Ivan Sanderson, who knew Morris K. Jessup and was involved in, in the whole Morris K. Jessup thing. And later on, he meets some other people who take him up to Montauk, where he starts to have some memories break through when he's there at Long Island. And along about 1985, I was invited, after I became an engineer, I went through school, I was invited to come visit with Preston Nichols on the island, and I went there in August of 85, and we went to Montauk. For the first time, I thought, he thought, we were all exposed to this base with its buried projects, unbelievably bad vibrations there. But on my second visit to the same location in May of 86, where we documented it, and those photos I'll show you tomorrow night, my memory started to come back of being involved in the Phoenix Project as Al Bielik. And later on, <clears throat> in 88, 
it happened to be January, on a Saturday night on HBO, they were showing the movie, The Philadelphia Experiment, which I had not seen prior, or the actual movie in 84. And that jogged my memory enormously that night so that I started to remember the Philadelphia Experiment and the fact that I was involved. From that point on, as history, recovering more memories and more data, and eventually going public. We'll get to Preston Nichols and the Phoenix Project in a bit, but one thing I want to make an observation about, and I think I'm correct on this, is that in later tellings, when I've heard Al tell a story on Coast to Coast or shows like that, he doesn't go into the fact that he had been researching this since the 1960s. He doesn't really talk about that. I might be misremembering, but it seems to me that the recollection I have of his story from later tellings begins with begins with him being triggered or activated by the Philadelphia Experiment movie or these visits to Montauk, um, rather than his Philadelphia experiment research from the 1960s. Now, one thing that's interesting in the Brad Steiger book is that Bielek implies that Sanderson somehow was privy to all this information about his previous life. Al Bielek had made acquaintance of Ivan T. Sanderson, the noted naturalist, television personality, zoologist, UFO researcher, and authority on anomalous phenomena. Sanderson, who among an almost endless list of accomplishments and hobbies was a spelunker, an amateur cave explorer, and he began to puzzle Bielek with stories of shared adventures with Bielek and his brother. The more Al would protest that he had not gone cave crawling with Sanderson, the more the colorful Scotsman would insist that Bielek had forgotten. The more that Al would argue that he did not have a brother, the more Ivan would look strangely askance at him. Ivan would go on in great detail, effortlessly describing the great times he had had with my brother and me, Bielek said. I have since determined that Duncan and I both resemble our prior physical lives. I was a bit heavier, slightly more muscular, but almost exactly the same height. Duncan looks almost exactly as he did before. Perhaps the only significant difference is that as Camerons, we both had dark, wavy hair. Now, conveniently for everybody involved except us, these stories about Bielek and Sanderson don't come out until after Sanderson is dead. Now, there are photographs of Bielek with Sanderson that I've seen online and published in this book. Um, I think what that proves, if it proves anything, is that Bielek had a long-standing interest in the Philadelphia experiment before he gets involved in claiming he was part of the Philadelphia experiment. So this book by Steiger goes into more detail on alien conspiracies and cover-ups that are connected with the Philadelphia experiment. And a lot of it is very similar to what we see throughout the 1980s and 1990s. It's very conspiratorial, very tied into what people like John Lear and Bill Cooper and Bill English were talking about. But there are some quirks. The Philadelphia experiment, according to Bielek, had ripped a hole in hyperspace 40 years wide. And that is such an evocatively sci-fi phrase, 40 years wide. The whole Philadelphia experiment was set up by an alien group that had met with President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1934. Yes, FDR met with aliens somewhere in the mid-Pacific. I believe it was on board the Pennsylvania. He signed an agreement that would exchange alien technology in return for certain planetary privileges. The treaty was made with a group that I'll just label the K Group. These aliens can pass for human, although their skin tends to have a slight greenish tint. Because of this tendency, they often bleach their epidermis white in order to pass among us as human beings. In the interests of time and my blood pressure, I think I will just leave alone Belix notion that in order to pass as human, the aliens had to appear white. Um, 
just leave that there. But also, golly, he sure knows a lot about the aliens for somebody who earlier claimed he didn't know earlier that same year claimed he didn't know much about the aliens. He didn't know who they were or anything like that. But now he knows a whole lot. He knows that this meeting had been arranged by Tesla since Tesla had been in contact with the aliens since the 1920s and even earlier. And immediately after this agreement took place, we began to see enormous scientific benefits from our new alien partners. Overall, Bielik has some pretty detailed information about what's going on with our potential alien overlords. Al Bielik is of the opinion that the alien group known as the Greys are not as hostile toward humankind as other UFO researchers might have us believe. I think the Grey aliens are really pawns of a species of reptilian entities from Orion, he states. I believe that the reptilians plan to take over the governments of Earth, possibly enslave humankind, and wipe out the Greys. Although Bielik feels that a one-world government on Earth is inevitable if the planet is to survive, he certainly does not wish despotic reptilians to be in charge. The Galactic Council also wishes our planet to exist peacefully under one banner of international brotherhood and sisterhood, with all nations receiving equality and respect. But the reptilians from Orion want to run the whole show. It certainly is getting a little out of hand. And by 1994, this story would expand even further. A new book about the Philadelphia Experiment comes out, this one from Commander X. It's called the Philadelphia Experiment Chronicles, as I said at the beginning of the show. And here we learned how the Philadelphia Experiment transitioned into something different called the Phoenix Project, beginning in 1947. And we start to see hints of interdimensional stuff. Headline, Phoenix Project Enabled Invasion of the Greys. Now, if you want a little history of UFOs and the problems with ETs at the present time, a mass invasion took place, which Cooper has mentioned. There was a massive invasion of the Greys during the period in the early 50s onward. The invasion is over because they're already here. The indications are that they came from another space-time continuum, a reality other than the one we consider as our universe. They had to have a way of getting in in massive numbers. This was their way. This entire project. The two coupling together. As I view it now today with the data I have was generated for the specific purpose of creating a hole in space-time to allow a massive invasion of Earth into our reality, into our system, that took a great deal of knowledge and a great deal of control by extraterrestrial intelligences. To my knowledge, there are no ETs involved in the functioning of the Philadelphia experiment. There were a great many involved in the functioning of the Phoenix Project. The basic technology that we had was inadequate. That was the function of Montauk. And it took a group of aliens that worked there for 10 years converting their technological data to our IBM 360 formats because we didn't have computers in those days that could handle it, other than by manual conversion. They did it. Commander X then introduces us to a woman named Helga, who claims that her father was one of the scientists who worked on the Philadelphia experiment. She tells us how she and Al Bielik traveled to Montauk, New York, and met a man named Preston Nichols as well as Duncan Cameron, Al's supposed half-brother, which dovetails into Al's telling about how he went to Montauk and met these people, and then memories start flooding back. And according to Helga, they have a very interesting story to tell. During my trip, I was introduced to Preston Nichols, who worked there as a scientist in the now totally dismantled labs and in the radar building. There was also Al Bielik's half-brother, Duncan Cameron, who is a great psychic with the most extraordinary capabilities and mind control known to mankind. As part of the Philadelphia experiment, Duncan, by using his extraordinary psychic powers, not only created physical manifestations, but was able to transport solid objects to distant locations. 
He even materialized a 25-foot-tall monster that couldn't be stopped once created, eventually destroying numerous structures throughout the area. We'll hear more about that when we come back from this break. But before we get to the break, I do want to tell you what Al Bielik thought of Carlos Allende and Carlos Allende's stories. This is from the MUFON talk from 1990. Many stories are told about him. He's been interviewed many times, and certain things just don't hang together in the stories he tells. He may well have been there, but nobody has been able to nail down his real history. I mean, that's not wrong, but I have a feeling that Al Bielik is the last person who should be calling out um, anybody for having an unbelievable story that doesn't hang together and whose history doesn't quite make sense. We'll be looking more at Al Bielik's history after the break and digging into this Project Phoenix and more with Montauk. We'll be back next week as usual, fielding your questions and comments about this episode and actually about all of the Philadelphia Experiment and Montauk stuff that we've covered. We'll also be looking at some tangentially related materials a little bit, some books I got a hold of that that are sort of spinoffs or, or some things that are interesting that I, I didn't have time to um, get in the mail before I had to record things or that just didn't quite fit. Things like the novel Thin Air or um, Brad Steiger's first book about the Allende letters or a book that connects the Philadelphia experiment to Phil Schneider of Dulcie Bass fame. So get your questions and comments to us through comments on this episode on the website, social media, or through email at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and, and Facebook and, and everything at Saucer Life. And on the next regular episode, we're going to be looking at a figure from the earlier part of the 20th century whose work would have an influence on some aspects of the saucer lives that we know and love, and that man is William Dudley Pelly. We've mentioned him here and there before. You might be familiar with him from other areas, but we're going to get a little more history-ish next time, looking deeper into the early 20th century and some of the political and also spiritual aspects of what would underlie some ufo thought later on you can support the show at patreon.com slash chizomedia there's also a link in the show notes lots of great content there bonus episodes videos extended sort of commentary on uh, episodes both of the saucer life and uh, our other podcast great lakes lore which i host with samantha engel and lots of stuff we are very appreciative of those who are supporting us over there it's, it's been fun interacting with everybody on that platform as well so patreon.com slash media or just uh, just click the link in the show notes and now now i think we've got to get back to the program and figure out exactly whether or not al Bielik used to be a guy named edward cameron and then we're going to hightail it out to montauk long island and we're going to sit in a magic chair all right a little more on al Bielik. in addition to his travels through time his well his soul traveling through time to various places he visited some other points on the time stream 
in the far future and also out in space. Here's Al talking about going to Alpha Centauri or Alpha Centauri 1. Let's be um let's be accurate. Arrived there not knowing what was happening or why I was there or what had really happened. At this point I was not shall we say properly educated into portals and their capability for taking you and transporting you from point A to point B, which could be on the other side of the universe in zero, almost zero time. But in any case, I arrived at Alpha Centauri 1, and I was greeted by a group of humanoid-looking aliens. And I knew they were aliens, but they had a more or less human appearance. What was the more part and what was the less part? <laughs> well, the more part was that they had a head, two hands, two arms, two legs, a torso, and uh, ran about just about six foot. Mm -hmm. uh, the general body appearance, if you covered their face, would pass for human except the skin where it was exposed was mottled in a strange way and they had no hair. What color was their skin? Skin color was, as I remember it now, it was sort of a mixture of yellow yellowish and whitish. It was like it was in patches, a patch of white, a patch of yellow. I don't know why he didn't talk about this in the books he wrote or in his MUFON talk. That would have been way more interesting, especially for a MUFON talk, than a lot of the things he talked about. Maybe those particular memories hadn't been unlocked yet, but maybe I'm just being cynical. He also went to the year 2137, which doesn't sound that great, to be honest. Here, an interviewer asks Al about his journey there and the implications of the six weeks he spent in 2137 for mankind, or humankind, or people on Earth. All of us. What is the implication of the six weeks there? Uh, detail, there's not a great deal of detail I can recall on that, other than the fact that I was in a hospital bed for four weeks and in the hospital itself for another two weeks with Duncan in a bed adjacent to me. And this, of course, is after we jumped off the Eldridge. And uh, the first four weeks basically was physically recovering from the damage which had occurred, which were, at that time little was known about this problem, but it is known now. If you go out into a space or even a hyperspace, there are all kinds of radiations out there which can be highly damaging to the body. And that's exactly what happened to us. We had no protective suits on, no protective clothing. And when we arrived in 2137, as they told us, we were in pretty bad physical shape, that we had been severely burned in our trip through hyperspace, space, or whatever the term was they used. Sounds rough. You go all the way to the future, and you end up in a hospital room. Were the hospital rooms at least nice and well-appointed or whatever? But while there, of course, watching TV, as it was TV, and they had in this hospital room, TV sets, and uh, one for me, and I guess one for Duncan. Were they a little different than the kinds of TV sets we know now in the year 2000? Very little different. There were color TVs, there were screens mounted on a uh, swivel unit up on the ceiling, so you could control the angle at which it was down and the direction in which it was swiveled towards you, so it would be aimed straight at you. Uh, the sound could come out of the ceiling speaker or it could <clears throat> come from ear sets. Uh, whichever you preferred. And uh, there was program selection. You had an automatic control for that, just like we have remotes for today. Do you recall what TV programs you watched? 
Wow, the future sounds absolutely amazing. Is there anything else interesting besides the TV remotes, Al? The first thing I noted was references geographically to the United States, and I noticed severe changes in the coastlines and the interior, and uh, the fact that Europe was didn't look at all like when I had remembered it. And I started asking questions. What's happened? What's going, been going on? That's when they uh, said, I want to see maps of what's happened and some description. I said, it looks like there's been major earth changes. And I said, yes, there have been. It all happened in the period between uh, the beginning of the 21st century and basically the year 2025. All right, what happened? So they told me, they showed me maps and did describe it briefly. Uh, the east coast of the United States was rather heavily changed, not as much as the west coast, but neither one for that matter. None of the changes I saw would uh, fit some of the uh, very far out maps promulgated in the late 20th century by various people such as the I Am America group and uh, uh, Michael Gordon Scallion and his series of maps. Ooh, earth changes. I It occurs to me that I would love to do an earth changes episode, but it isn't really very flying saucerish, and I mean, that's one thing that I always sort of was irritated by by Earth Changes episodes with Gordon Michael Scallion or Laurie Toy or whoever on Coast to Coast AM is that on the radio you you you're stuck having to hear their descriptions of how these maps have changed, and it's 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 not that great. So Al Bielek also goes to or Edward Cameron whoever, also goes to the year 2749. And that is astounding because it's even more boring. Al, can you describe what the civilization was like in the year 2749? What I saw of this civilization was a highly advanced civilization and technologically. We had floating cities, we had ground-based cities. The floating ones are anti-gravity type flotation. 2100, 2200 stories, like the cities are two and a half miles high. And in retrospect, I have looked at that and it says, now how the blazes, with any of the materials that we know in the 20th century, how could they build anything that would sustain that kind of weight from the stories above it? And of course, it was explained to me at that time in the 28th century that it was very easy to explain because they had conquered had full control over anti-gravity and multiple systems of anti-gravity in which they built platforms of every 300 floors approximately. And uh, they would relieve the strain of the pressure from above with an anti-gravity reverse system so that the pressure from above disappeared. So that each section only had to support its own weight and they kept adding sections as they built this city up to 2100, 2200 stories. And in addition, if they wanted the city to be a floating city, it was a floating city. So who is Al Bielek? What is the deal with this guy? Following a tip from a listener, the ever-informative Brian, I found an archived copy of a website that's no longer active, but it is the descriptively named Bielek-debunked.com. There's not a lot of room for ambiguity there. And while I'm going to relay this information to you, I can't take credit for finding it. We're going to be poking some holes in his story a little bit. We're not going into a, a huge amount of detail. But um, in our hole poking, we are standing on the shoulders of, of giants, or at least looking at a website that get, did some good detective work. Better detective work than I'd do. I mean, they talked on the phone to people. I almost never do that. So hats off to anyone committed enough to an investigation to pick up a phone. They're, they're heroes, everyone. 
I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But basically, the upshot is that they've looked into this story of uh, Alexander Duncan Cameron, supposedly the father of Edward Cameron and Duncan Cameron Jr. And it turns out that this man exists, a man named Alexander Duncan Cameron existed. But the picture that was always on Al Bielik's website was not the picture of the same man he talked about. And the creator of this website found the grandchildren of, um, or the granddaughter of Alexander Duncan Cameron saying that's his picture, but, um, this is nothing to do with, with my family. They basically found a picture and a name from a Yale yearbook and then said it was a Princeton yearbook. Um, it's, it's crazy and it's weird, but basically it's all a fabrication. There's also some interviews with people who worked with Al Bielik in the past and said he was always interested in this stuff. He did do a lot of um, work and investigation with the uh, um, Psychotronics, U.S. Psychotronics Association, which is how he came into contact with this Preston Nichols fellow. And that is where we're going to head next to Preston Nichols and the Montauk Project. So in the early 90s or mid 90s, 1992, I guess that's early 90s, Preston Nichols teamed up with a guy named Peter Moon and wrote The Montauk Project, Experiments in Time. And Preston Nichols, it's it's hard to describe him. He's He was sort of a electronics genius who um, gets involved in investigating what's going on in Montauk and at Camp Hero, the supposed place where Bielik comes back to, he'd already known Bielik through the U.S. Psychotronics Association, which is an organization that was interested in, as far as I can tell, mind control technology and, and using machines to control the mind or influence the mind and things like that. So there would be a trilogy of books, um, The Montauk Project, Experiments in Time, Montauk Revisited, Adventures in Synchronicity, and Pyramids of Montauk, Explorations in Consciousness. These all come out between 92 and and 95 or 96 or so, and they get progressively weirder. And initially, I had thought to go through these books in detail, but they're so weird and they're so bizarre and so dense, and they do get very far afield from the Philadelphia experiment that I think we can sort of hit some highlights of them with some sound clips from the various videos and documentaries that are around and get a good idea of what might be going on with some interesting side trips here or there to ancient times and time travel and things like that. So things begin with a a forward by by Peter Moon. It's it's hard to tell sometimes who's writing which part of the book. Sometimes they label it clearly, sometimes they don't. But there is a a guide to the reader. And oh, this is Peter Moon, I see at the top of the page. And it has an interesting, I would call it a disclaimer, but I think Peter Moon would probably describe it as an exploration to the nature of evidence. Some of the data you'll read in this book can be considered as soft facts. Soft facts are not untrue, they are just not backed up by irrefutable documentation. A hard fact would be documentation or hard physical evidence that could stand up to scrutiny. By the nature of the subject matter and security considerations, hard facts about the Montauk Project have been very difficult to obtain. There is also an area between soft and hard facts which can be termed gray facts. 
These would be very plausible, but not as easily provable as hard facts. So Nichols tells us that back in the early 1970s, he was working for a large, well-known defense contractor on Long Island that he calls BJM. That's not the real name. And he began doing research into radio waves and telepathic communication. He realized that radio waves and telepathic communication work on the same principles. He's working with antennas and sorts of things, and he picks up a signal, and he traces the signal to Montauk and he's walking around and he is meeting people and the caretaker and he is finding strange things and strange feelings like he's been there before. Then in 1984, he meets Duncan Cameron and this guy just shows up in his lab and he knows where things are at, at Montauk. He knows where the things are, the mess hall and things like that. And Duncan decides that he might know more than he remembers. So Preston uses, he says, techniques that he learned to help Duncan unblock his memories. And a lot of information comes out. Many different things were revealed until finally a shocking program came straight to the awareness of Duncan's conscious mind. He blurted out that he had been programmed to come to my place, befriend me, and then kill me and blow up my entire lab. All my work would be totally destroyed. Duncan appeared to be more outraged at all this than I was. He swore that he would no longer help those who had programmed him, and he has worked with me ever since. Further work with Duncan has revealed even more bizarre information. He had been involved in the Philadelphia experiment. He said that he and his brother Edward had served aboard the Eldridge as members of the crew. Nichols continues to feel like he has some sort of connection himself to whatever has been going on at Montauk. And he follows some instincts into an office. And it turns out it was his office from 1971 when he was a director of the project. And as he unlocks more memories and as he learns more about this, he realizes that this Montauk project was designed to really do all kinds of things. It's all over the place. There's time travel involved. There's interdimensional travel involved. There's jumping between different time tracks. There's going to be mind control involved in some ways. And one of the greatest things about this, and, and going into to endless detail about it, is just going to break our brains. But one of the greatest things about it was there was a chair, the Montauk chair. And this is how it's described initially. Inside that building, they had a chair inside a shielded room. First, they'd sit someone in the chair. This was usually Duncan Cameron. Then they would open and close the door to determine how much UHF microwave energy was getting into the room. All this was being done while the antenna was rotated and focused to a point in front of the building. At the same time, the transmitter was blasting gigawatts of power. So what is this chair actually for? Preston Nichols goes into the technology underlying the chair. In the 1950s, ITT developed sensor technology that could literally display what a person was thinking. It was essentially a mind-reading machine. It operated on the principle of picking up the electromagnetic functions of human beings and translating those in an understandable form. It consisted of a chair in which a person would sit. Coils, which served as sensors, were placed around the chair. There were also three receivers, six channels, and a Cray-1 computer which would display what was on a person's mind, digitally or on a screen. The chair could also be used, in combination with Duncan Cameron's amazing psychic abilities, to 
do even more tangible things. Here, Preston explains how that worked. And this is from a a video about the Montauk project that was shot on VHS and was very sort of grainy and uh, and weird and sort of home movie looking. And it gives you a little, you can get a sort of feel for what it's like to be around Preston Nichols. So he was trained to actually visualize something in its entirety. Mm-hmm. And what they were experimenting with was precipitating or materializing objects around the base. Mm-hmm. A favorite was a can of Budweiser beer on the base commander's desk, <laughs> the base commander like Bud. <laughs> so they showed idea. Duncan a picture of the base commander's desk in his office, and he would visualize in his virtual reality a can of Budweiser beer sitting on that desk. Mm-hmm. Sure enough, it would appear on that desk. Mm-hmm. And the guy could drink it and it didn't poison him or anything. He said it was very good. It was better than typical Bud was. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) Amazing. A little bit later, Duncan is going to manifest something even more impressive than a can of Budweiser. So Preston also talks about how the Montauk Project was working on creating um, portals through time for for time travel and things like that. And he describes what these, these portals and tunnels looked like. I've been told by those who entered the tunnel that it looked like a spiral, similar to science fiction-style renditions of a vortex. When outside the tunnel, it looked like you were looking through space, from one circular opening through space to a circular but a little bit smaller window at the other end. I was considered too valuable to the technical operation and was not allowed to travel through the portal. So, it's just a coincidence that it looked like the time tunnel from the old TV show, The Time Tunnel. A bit later, the Phoenix Project, which was the official name of the Montauk Project or the project taking place at Montauk, would um, start recruiting people for time travel experiments and sort of large numbers of people. And, and Preston argues that argues claims there is a, a Nazi connection or a neo-Nazi connection to all of this. And the time travel story I thought it was weird when you had Al Bielek going into the year 2700 and his soul going back to 1927 or something, but the time travel aspect just gets a lot more strange. A later investigation showed that Montauk had a neo-Nazi connection and that the Nazis were still on the Aryan kick. We don't know where the kids went, what they were educated in or programmed for. Whether they came back or not is still a mystery. What information is available is that they sent every raw recruit into the future to 6037 AD, always to the same point, to what appeared to be a dead city in ruins. Everything was stationary, not unlike a dream state. There were no signs of life. In the center of the city was a square with a gold horse on a pedestal. There were inscriptions on that pedestal, and the recruits were sent there to read what they said. Each recruit would interpret and report. We still don't know what the researchers were after. They could have been trying to find the same answer from different people. I don't know. Duncan suggested there was technology in the pedestal and that they were trying to get somebody to sense or feel what the technology was. We know a lot of people were shoved somewhere into the future, maybe 200 or 300 years ahead. Estimates range from three to 10,000 people that were eventually abandoned. We have no idea for what purpose. I wonder if these are some of those soft facts we heard about in the introduction. The project was also sending people to Mars, to uh, to ruins on Mars. And how do we know they're sending people to Mars? Is there any corroborating evidence? Well, Nichols cites 
Alternative 3, which we've done an episode about, and the research of Richard Hoagland, the face on Mars guy. And uh, just this little bit here, he talks about Alternative 3, and it is just astounding in its lack of thoroughness and or accuracy. It is not my cause to prove that a colony exists or did exist on Mars. I have included this information so that the reader will understand there is an entire scenario concerning Mars that is separate from my story. Those who are interested can investigate Hoagland's Mars or Alternative 3 for themselves. It is interesting to note, however, that the documentary entitled Alternative 3 was shown on a San Francisco TV station sometime around the late 70s. A story has proliferated since that time that the FCC threatened to revoke the station's broadcasting license if it were shown again. It wasn't shown again. If you haven't listened to our episode about Alternative 3 um, from a couple years back, please do so uh, for a wider vision of why that statement is a, a very incomplete story of the Alternative 3 documentary. It was, as you know, a a television drama from Britain. It was a mockumentary April Fool's Day style prank. So we are now up to 1983 in the history of the Montauk Project. And it's August 5th, 1983. Preston says they are given orders to run the Montauk transmitter nonstop, just ripping holes in hyperspace all over the place. And a week later, the Eldridge appears. So this is where it links up with the uh, the Philadelphia experiment and the Al Bielik story. And then the Duncan from 1943 appears and he's hanging out there with the Duncan who's at the Montauk base in 1983. And they, they kept him out of his own way so he wouldn't, you know, corrupt the timelines or anything like that. But the project, Nichols says, had reached, quote, apocalyptic proportions. Natural laws were being violated, and it seemed everyone involved felt uncomfortable. So Nichols and three other colleagues, including Duncan, decide to wreck the whole place and bring it down. And the way they're going to do it is with the chair. So when Duncan was in the chair and somebody approached him saying, the time is now, this is what happened. At this moment, he let loose a monster from his subconscious, and the transmitter actually portrayed a hairy monster. It was big, hairy, hungry, and nasty. But it didn't appear underground at the null point. It showed up somewhere on the base. It would eat anything it could find, and it smashed everything in sight. Several different people saw it, but almost everyone described a different beast. It was either 9 feet tall or 30 feet tall, depending on who saw it. I personally believe it was about 9 or 10 feet in height. Fright does strange things to people, and no one was sure of what the exact physical constitution of this monster was. No one was in any frame of mind to calmly and collectively analyze its exact nature. This is probably one of my favorite things about this entire story of all of this, of just manifesting this monster that then rampages through the base, wrecking everything. Inside, they, they wreck all the machinery. They're trying to to make sure that none of this can ever be used again and everything falls apart. The base was sealed up and that's the end of it. Or is it? What else do we learn from the Montauk Project? Oh, we learn that uh, Dr. John von Neumann did not die back in, I think, the late 50s when our history says he died. Uh, he's still alive. He was living under the name Dr. Reinhardt, which is hilarious because that is um, – 
one of the names that was used in um, to, to, as a sort of cover for a scientist, I believe, in the Morin Berlitz Philadelphia Experiment book. They just sort of swiped that. Um, oh, oh, there's this other little piece of information. At this writing, we are currently in a time loop. This loop extends from where the Montauk researchers penetrated into the past up to where they penetrated into the future. It's fixed and would appear unalterable. However, this does not mean that we are all relegated to being hopeless slaves of time manipulators. The subconscious has its automatic or hypnotic levels, but it also contains the seeds of freedom, dreams. If one can dream something, it can be brought into being. Like a big, giant, hairy monster that destroys your Air Force base. So that's basically it for that Montauk Project book, the initial one. Um, the second book, Montauk Revisited, Adventures in Synchronicity, has a, a, a sizable chunk of introduction stuff by Peter Moon. He writes a lot more in this one and the third book than the first one. But um, he has this to say about Preston. Preston is a walking, talking security risk as far as the intelligence community is concerned. There is no question in my own mind that he has been involved with secret government and intelligence projects. It's also obvious to anyone who knows him that he has been schooled in information that is beyond the boundaries of higher learning. Preston remembers studying textbooks and information that is privy only to those in secret sectors of the military-industrial complex. Though his only degree is a bachelor's in engineering, he estimates that he has obtained the equivalent of PhDs in physics, psychology, theology, and engineering. His opinions are most definitely sought after by prominent people in the scientific community. Among the interesting things in this book is an entire chapter dedicated to skullduggery surrounding the Philadelphia Experiment movie, including tracking down one of the scriptwriters who claims that he was the one who put the uh, the time travel elements into the script that before it had just been sort of a conspiracy kind of movie but but Peter Moon does not believe this could this be another disinformation ploy you know to to cover up things because remember time travel really hadn't been part of the Philadelphia experiment thing at all until Bielik shows up and the Montauk people show up so I mean, the movie having the time travel stuff in it and then subsequently time travel gets added to the Philadelphia experiment by these people selling books and selling tickets to talks and things like that. I don't know. It seems kind of suspicious to me. There's a lot more we could go into with some of the details about Nazi occult things and magic and Aleister Crowley and they bring in L. Ron Hubbard and Jack Parsons and the Babylon working and the pyramids of Montauk matching up to pyramids in Egypt and pyramids on Mars and they bring in the Montauk Native American group and it's just a morass of weirdness that progressively takes us further and further away from um, the Philadelphia experiment roots of all this. But there's one last thing I want to talk about, and that is, or those are, the Montauk Boys. Uh, beginning in the early 70s, the Montauk group became interested in mind-controlling young boys. They were separated into three groups, ages 6 to 12, 13 to 16, and 16 to 22. And some would go to the gray aliens for genetic experimentation. Others would be programmed and put back into society, sometimes with their original family, sometimes with a new family. So what were they being programmed for? The idea with these younger children was to have them assimilate into the population. They would be groomed to be normal pillars of society and would go to college and become lawyers, doctors, politicians, or whatever. 
These people are sleepers in the sense that when the secret government wants to activate them, they will be on call. They could be answerable on both a psychotronic, hypnotic basis or verbal command. The plan is to activate them when chaotic times come so that they can band together into vigilante squads and go after government enemies. Their instructions are not specific other than to go after anyone believed to be anti-government and to commit general destruction against anti-government groupings. There's also some details here, and, and this is in Montauk Revisited, the second book in the trilogy. The third book is the one that gets into all the, the really weird stuff. And this came out in 1994. But listen to this and think if it sounds like anything that might be current in today's conspiratorial environment. While the kids were being broken, rod-like antenna structures were placed in the room. I believe this was an alien device that was designed to pick up the patterns of fear and hopelessness. Someone was apparently recording these patterns. The boys that died were analyzed and had certain body parts removed. These body parts were significant because of the state they were in when the boys died at the height of fear. UFO folklore has it that the Grey Nation is very interested in our fear. It has been suggested that they harvest our fright. At Montauk, it is possible that the kid's scenario was originally set up by the Greys for their own purposes. It is also possible that they suggested it and the Montauk Brass did it for their own purposes. So maybe I'm just too steeped in conspiracy culture, but this sounds so much like the adrenochrome extraction stuff that is current in the sort of QAnon-adjacent conspiracy community. So a few years back, there was a TV show called Disinformation TV, and it looked at a lot of really weird stuff, sort of turn of the millennium stuff. And they did a segment, like a 10-minute segment, on the Montauk Project, which was really, really fascinating. And here we have Preston Nichols talking about how these Montauk boys would, would come find him after, uh, after his presentations. Usually they hear me speak, then they come up to me at the lecture and say, am I one of the Montauk boys he spoke of? And of course I ask them, why are they, you know, why are they questioning? And they say, well, it feels right. Or some say they have dreams. There's also a man interviewed in this documentary named Stuart Swerdlow who claimed he was part of the Montauk Project and was used in, in time travel experimentation and missions. We'll hear one example in a little bit. But um, he had a slightly different opinion about these people who claimed to be Montauk boys or wanted to be Montauk boys. Well, there are people who want to believe they're involved in the Montauk Project because to them, on the outside, it may appear glamorous, mysterious. Uh, there's a certain intrigue involved that makes them special. Um, but they don't realize is for the people who have really been involved, it's been a very traumatic, debasing and degrading experience that nobody should go through. As for Swerdlow's mission he undertook, this is, this is just wild. Listen to this. This is just fun and weird. I was sent through the portal with the with a pistol and my goal was to actually um, kill the Christ figure and what happened was when I saw him coming down the steps of the temple I couldn't do it I just I ran away they sent me back when he was up on the cross and my goal then was to extract vials of blood from his body which I did do I did bring them back. 
Was the idea to bring about a, uh, a fourth yes. apocalypse? What? No, he was supposed to, they were going to take the blood, clone the blood. Basically shoot up Duncan with, you know, replace all his blood with the clone blood of Christ. Then he'd board a craft, fly from Mars to here, land, proclaim himself Christ, say that he's Christ returned. Well, what would happen is the medical people would take a sample of his blood and compare it to a blood sample on the, from the Shroud of Turin. And they say genetically it's the same. Soft facts, folks. Soft facts. Okay, one last thing, and this is what the disclaimer at the beginning was about. Um, Preston Nichols had a, um, had, had a, had a te technique for deprogramming these Montauk boys. Um, and, uh, we're, 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 this is, this is where the documentary reveals that this is rough stuff. The woman, uh, woman's voice you're hearing is Alexandra Bruce, who wrote a book we'll be covering next week in our listener feedback and sort of wrap up session of tangential things. She wrote a book called, uh, the, um, Philadelphia experiment murders. But, um, here are, our uh, Alexander Bruce and Preston Nichols, and uh, you'll recognize their voices, and there's a, a narrator as well. I was um, interviewing a young man last year who also claims to have been part of that, the Antichrist Project, which is what it was known as, and he is a Satanist, <laughs> and uh, very messed up, I believe, by a lot of multidimensional weirdness, including certain deprogramming uh, work that was done on him by Preston, and I, I do have my problems with that whole scenario. I have the ability through my empathic or empathy to literally be able to scan and look into a human being. They involved masturbating young men in a lot with the help of, I think, certain um, radionic devices, and and then and quet and then questioning them, like inquisitioning them, in that kind of a scenario. Let me ask you this: If you have this ability, look at me and tell me what you see. I can't just look at you. I literally have to feel you your uh, aura and your frequencies and scan in. I do it through hand scans. It has to be close on. That is so creepy. That is so, so creepy. And I think that's kind of where I want to draw a line under the Montauk Project. Yes, there's a, a wealth of more things to talk about, but just to sort of sum up, Al Bielek died in 2011. Preston Nichols in 2018, and Duncan Cameron, and I'm not sure who Duncan Cameron really is. I tried to figure it out, but didn't figure out if he had a different name. Somebody out there will email me to correct me on that, I'm sure, but Duncan Cameron died in 2019. I've not heard any news of their souls being reborn, but I would not be at all surprised if uh, someone in about 2041 shows up at a UFO convention claiming to be Edward Cameron in a new body. And so it will go forever. So what do we do with this, with all of this? I've been thinking about that a lot over the last couple months that I've been working on, on all of this material. And I think 
the issue of which parts are true and which aren't is kind of a blind alley. I do kind of like Keel's notion that Carl Allen got some things confused and wove a whole narrative around a misunderstanding about invisibility tricks and experimental ships. I am fairly convinced that Morris K. Jessup was a victim of depression and suicide. And I think that sometimes the conspiracy culture with its emphasis on nothing being simple and nothing being straightforward um, does a lot to erase things like mental illness and, and suicide and depression and things like that. And I'm not getting on a soapbox here. I, I'm, I'm really not. But looking into some of these topics too deeply for too long can affect you, not in any sort of spooky paranormal way, um, not, not the trickster, not anything like that. I think sometimes when you deal with these things, the darker side of the stuff, especially the mind control stuff, especially the dark political stuff, I, I think it can, it can drag you down into a hole. These rabbit holes can become obsessions and obsessions with dark, depressing stuff that you, you need to, you need to be careful. You need to be careful and you need to take care of yourself and you need to step back. There's a reason why I follow up, you know, two weeks of mill abs and abductions with a fun, pleasant Japanese contactee. It's fun. And, um, what am I following this up with? William Dudley Pelly and the silver shirts and their connection and, and right wing politics and fascism's connections to uh to ufology so diving right back in there but i i've learned when to step back and uh I, that that was kind of a soapbox wasn't it um it just take care of yourselves okay this is weird stuff sometimes this is this is weird stuff so moving on i uh i'm pretty sure preston nichols was a weird creepy kind of predator a little bit with his uh, deprogramming techniques. And I I did not look into, I purposefully did not look into how young some of the Montauk boys were, these young men that he deprogrammed. Um, I, yeah. Anyway, but I think the best way to think about all this is almost as a reflection of how the worlds of ufology and conspiracy get progressively darker over the decades. It's kind of hard to remember. This has been a UFO story all the way back to Jessup's marked up book and all the way through the talk of the greys at Montauk and mind programming and things like that and torturing young boys to nourish aliens. It's been quite a journey and it's hard to remember that this started off in a much more simple way. We go from an intriguing mystery about the Navy wanting copies of a strangely annotated book and we end up with all of this. You know, when I mentioned I was going to be looking into Montauk a bit, several people on social media and, and, and friends who are into this sort of thing, a lot of people told me I was in for a wild ride, and they were right. If I didn't do it justice, and I'm not claiming that I did, it's because it sometimes veered into areas where I'm just not competent or interested. Magic and the occult for the not competent, pseudoscientific technobabble for the not interested part. But I will say this, Al Bielek comes across as an utterly straightforward and sincere speaker when saying the most outrageous nonsense. It's an amazing gift. 
Overall, I think this has been an interesting study in how narratives change and develop over time and how they can be manipulated and twisted into something else. And that is, of course, kind of my bread and butter on, on this show and in my research and writing. So this has been a useful exercise, and I hope I hope you've enjoyed it as well. And now I can cross the Philadelphia experiment off a list of topics that dates back to about 2017. So again, I hope you uh, I hope you enjoyed this ride i i did i enjoyed it, it the, the one redeeming factor and 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 some of you have become fans just from my talking about her is mrs pj dowers's book hoax and her whole involvement with uh, carl allen carlos allende and um Somebody, uh, somebody suggested that uh, there needs to be more stories about her, and I, I, I'm thinking this this line of you know cozy mysteries. What about cozy ufology with Mrs. Dowers and her boy solving UFO mysteries? Um, I, I think uh, I think Black Wolf on Twitter um, contacted me with, with with some ideas that sort of put that idea of cozy UFO investigation in my head. She is the most redeeming of all the factors that have come out of this. And I'm forever grateful that uh, David Halperin wrote that review of her book that, uh, that tipped me off to that. So anyway, I think this is a good place to close it. Okay, I've got some thanks and acknowledgements for this episode. Brian R. for loads of background information on Bielik, for tipping me off on that disinformation TV segment, and some excellent digitized ancient videotapes of, um, I think, the, the Preston Nichols uh, clip that you heard um, about the beer can was was from something he um, he, he sourced for me. Um, also, the Al Bielik debunked website is outstanding, and... Um, Really good stuff right there. The website, de173.com. Again, the more information about every aspect of the Philadelphia experiment than anybody needs. I mean, nobody needs all of it, but if you're looking into these topics, you're going to need something that is at DE173. If there's anybody out there who in a tweet or a DM or an email or a comment on the website um, said something that put a, a seed in my head for you know, a later segment and I, I'm not mentioning you, I'm very sorry. Um, if I have taken any suggestions or ideas or advice or help and done something stupid with it, it's completely on me, not on you. Thank you for listening. Remember to send in your questions and comments via the usual social media or email or website channels and we'll address them on the feedback episode next week where we'll also be closing the loop on some tangentially related uh, Philadelphia experiment material. And then William Dudley Pelly for Lester out there listening. Yes, you're going to get a William Dudley Pelly episode and I hope you enjoy it when I get to it. I'm, I'm, I'm excited because it, it lets me, it lets me be a historian a little bit, which is, which it turns out I'm, I'm actually pretty okay at our associate producer is Simpson J Hanover. The third and the saucer life is a production of Chizo media, LLC Chizo media, our heart as ever is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you. And thank you for hanging in with me through this three-episode saga. I'm exhausted. I'll see you on the other side. Good night.